So now, having finished the meditation, uh, usually give a Dhamma talk about something or other. And the first few words which I say, I'm just getting my vocal cords and my brain going again. Because when I teach you meditation, you get so still and so peaceful. And the brain doesn't want to speak. And I do recall many years ago, when I did a six-month personal retreat. And during that six months over at Bodhinyana Monastery, I never spoke to anybody for six months. I never saw another human being for six months. Just in the hut, food was sent to me once a day, I had plenty to eat. I didn't need to see anybody. But I do remember just after that, you can imagine just how peaceful and quiet you become. And I knew afterwards that people would ask me, you know, how are you? What did you experience? How do you feel? I had to talk. I remember just the, the effort to get my brain to think in its normal way again. It never wanted to. And I had a headache for three days. Maybe two and a half or three and a bit, I'm not quite sure, but around that time. Just how beautiful and perfect it was not to have to think. And then you could see, you could feel, you could know. And all of the, the reasons why people go to places like this, you know, for, you know, for religion, for meditation, for Buddhism, whatever else you come here for, you understand how it works. You can listen to what monks, nuns, experts say, you can read their books, but what is the most powerful is to experience that for yourself. And when you start to experiencing it for yourself, wow! They had a term when I was young, because I was in the hippie era, although I never took drugs. They used to say, like, blow your mind. And sometimes I kind of like that phrase, blow your mind. And that's what meditation does. You start to see things which you haven't seen before. And really interesting, fascinating things. You know that most of my talks, they uh, just depend on what I just hear beforehand. And just before I came in here, one of uh, the members here was talking about an upcoming trip they're going to do to Thailand. It's just in my head afterwards and some of the weird stuff which happens in some of those uh, places. So I think I'm going to start with that. One of the first places this group from here are going to when they go to Thailand, one of these monks, he was such a very, 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 very nice monk. Just, and one of the things we knew him for, that in his um, home, that he always would say this, and we checked this out with his brother, it was true. In his house, whenever his mother grew chili pepper, you know, to put in the food, the chili pepper in his house was always far less spicy than the house next door. And it was weird, it was true. Sometimes, how can just a calm, peaceful mind affect the things you grow in your garden? 
but it worked, it was true. I'm not quite sure how that worked. That was Ajahn Chandi. Then as you may remember him, he came and spent about six months, a year here, I forget how long, but he's a very lovely monk, very kind, very gentle, a very lovely person. And this is one of the things when you hang out with really nice people, it gives you some inspiration that this practice of meditation, keeping precepts, it makes you calm and peaceful and a lovely being to be with. And even your chili can't get too hot. <laughs> and so I always remember him with a lot of uh, gratitude and, and a lot of uh, happiness. But some of the other monasteries we're going to go to, I'm not sure if this is in order, but Prem said that one of the other monasteries was a monastery which was named after a previous head monk of Thailand. His full name was Somdet Yana Sangwara. And many of you don't know that he even came to Perth many years ago, before I came, before Ajahn Chakra came. He came for a short time. But uh, he actually offered and brought with him the Buddha statue which you see in the room to our left, as you go out here. And there's a nice little offering here. He was the head monk of a big monastery over in Bangkok. And that was a monastery in which they had one of these stories which I always love telling. Okay, I mean sometimes I love stories like supernatural things. The reason was because I was a theoretical physicist before. And if you look at some of the stuff which happens in theoretical physics, that come, sometimes looks supernatural. You know, quantum particles going all over the place. And you know, challenging your understanding of the nature of the world. But anyway, in this particular monastery, here it comes. I don't think I usually tell the story here. I think I usually tell it just on retreats. But anyway, here it comes. There was, this was made 40 years ago, well, 50 years ago. 40 years, no, maybe 45. Just at the end of the, the Vietnam War, and just after, when many US citizens joined the Peace Corps in order they had to get sort of served somewhere or, or, or other. So instead of like joining military, they joined the Peace Corps. And this was one young man who joined the Peace Corps, an American. I knew him. And at the end of his three years, I think he did, on the Peace Corps, he decided, why not become a monk? One of the attractive things, becoming a monk in Thailand in those days, was you could become a monk for however long you wanted. You don't have like a life of vows. That's one of the reasons I became a monk. I told many people this. I told my relations and friends and the employer, the school which had employed me, they wanted me to come back again. So I said, well give me a couple of years, I'll spend a couple of years in Thailand, get my meditation together, become enlightened, and then I'll come back and get married and get a job. <laughs> That's how little I understood about what I was doing. You learned on the job how powerful this path was. But nevertheless, that's what I told people. So this young man, an American, he wanted to become a monk. Do you know how you become a monk? What do you do? So what this monk decided to do, 
he asked the concierge in the hotel where he was staying, I want to become a monk, how to become a monk. Concierge knows many places to go, but he doesn't know about how to become a monk. But nevertheless, he knew there was this one monastery over in Bangkok. It was called Wat Bawan. And in that monastery, many Westerners would go to ordain to become monks. So he said, go there early in the morning. Go there, take some uh, food, offer it to one of the older monks on arms round, and ask him, I want to become a monk. So that's what he did. How many of you have heard this story before? Only a couple of you. Okay, this is a great story. So, he went there early in the morning, but he got the times all wrong. He went there about four o'clock in the morning. The place was all locked up. No one was around. And he was walking up and down outside the main ward of the monastery, wondering what to do. He had some food, but he was wandering up and down, and then there was a Thai man was wandering and asked him, you know, what do you want? What are you doing here so early in the morning? And this Thai man, Thai man could speak perfect English, which was strange, because most of them had accents, if they could speak English at all. So he said he wanted to become a monk. He told to come to this monastery, he came there too early. So that's what the, the man said, look, it's going to be a couple of hours before the monks come out of the monastery on arms round. So, I don't want you to wait around too long. He said, look, I've got the keys. I can take you inside, have a look around. So this Thai man, this is an absolutely true story. This Thai man uh, took him to this iron gate. I know this monastery very well. I stayed there many times. I know the iron gate. And he had the key, he opened the gate, let himself and this American in and went up to the main hall. This is the hall where even royalty are ordained. Because you know that sometimes the Tyrol family has to spend at least some time as monks. So he turned on the lights, opened the main door of the main hall, and no one was around, it's too early in the morning, and gave this American this guided tour of the main hall of Wat Bawan, monastery in Bangkok and he showed him all of the the murals on the wall. I don't know if any of you know the Buddhist culture but we have many stories and sometimes they paint those stories on the walls of the main hall. They're like cartoons but instead of like cartoons in the West which you know go you know from uh, left to right and then the next level left to right so you can actually figure out the chronology of the story. In the Thai tradition they go all over the place this way and that way. You have to know the story in order to actually to see what comes first, what comes last. But this Thai man was just so knowledgeable about the story and so he was explaining it all so this America could understand not just explaining it, but he also was suggesting, not suggesting, but telling him who sponsored these paintings. Because each one of these things, 
know, sometimes the people, you know, you come to to Bodhinyana Monastery or to Dhammasara, you come here, and you, know, you see that something needs to be done, like a new toilet or something, so people donate things. And here, they would donate one of these paintings in memory of the, maybe their son who died from typhoid or cholera at that time in Bangkok. And it was a couple of hundred years ago. And he was so knowledgeable about who donated this and what these stories actually mean. And the American was saying just how much it was interesting to hear this explanation in good English about all these paintings. Time flew by after two hours. This uh, Thai man said, now it's, the monks are going to come out in a few minutes. So you go out and just wait in the front where I, I met you and one of the Thai monks will come out and you just put some food in their bowl and ask them, I want to become a monk. I will just turn off the lights, lock the door and close the main gate, which is what the Thai man did. And the American, he just was out the front there waiting for the first monk to come out and he put some food in the monk's bowl and asked he wanted to become a monk, fine. Just wait here, when I come back, we'll start you off. The training to be a monk, you can't just become a monk, you've got to learn the chanting, learn the rules, you know, learn about how to hold a bowl, learn how to keep your robes on. <laughs> but then, <laughs> the man or the monk they assigned to teach this American was not good at English. So eventually the American said, can I have another guide, someone who speaks better English? I can't understand what this monk is saying. And they said, this is the best English speaker we have in the whole monastery. And at that the American said, well, what about that, I think he called him like temple attendant who met me on that first day, who took me inside and showed me around for a couple of hours. He speaks perfect English. And the monks who were training him said, who? He said, he let me through the gate. And the monk straight away said, no man, no layman has that key. Even more than that, this is something which I've known ever since I first came to Thailand. That is called the royal gate. Only members of the royal family are allowed to walk through that gate. Even me, as a monk, I could walk through that gate. That was weird. He said, what else did he do? Well, he took me into the main, main hall. No layperson's got that key, that's with the abbot and with somebody else. And he can't turn any electricity there. Then what did he do? Then he told me about all his paintings. Not even the monks knew all those stories. So straight away, they took him to the head monk. Who was this monk? Samdet Jnana Sangwara. He was the abbot of Wat Bawan at the time. And he started listening to this American and he stopped him and he called in the secretary. He wanted to write this all down because this was weird. 
No one knows of any layman like that walking around early in the morning. No one, a layperson, has a key and can go through the royal gate. He can't even turn on the electricity at the place where he's supposed to have turned it on. And even the abbot, one of the oldest monks in that monastery, didn't know all the stories of those uh, murals on the inside of the main hall. Everything was all written down. And of course, at the very end, you know, they asked the question, what did that layman look like? They wanted to find out who he was. No one knew of him. And they said that he, he was wearing old-style Thai clothes. Not modern ones, like trousers and a suit or anything, but the old style. So, but what did he look like? I said, well, I don't know. They all look the same. <laughs> but they wanted to know what he looked like. So this American, he was not trying to be of service because all the ties were really interested. This was weird. So he was scratching his head, and as you do, you know, what? then the American froze. It was him. That was the person. They had a portrait on the wall of the office of the abbot in Wapawan. That was him. King Rama the Fourth. One of the sponsors of that temple. Who passed away, maybe, I don't know, maybe that particular time, 75 years, no, 175 years ago or something. That was him. That was why he could open the royal gate. He was royalty. Why he could um, describe all those paintings, who sponsored them, what they meant. Because this was a person who was there at the time when those paintings were painted. That's why it was a heavenly being. You may not believe in those, but that's one of those great stories, who came to help a young man become a monk. I've told that story many times, maybe not to each one of you, but I remember telling that over in Sydney. And one of the people listening happened to be, uh, no, not in Sydney, this was actually in Singapore, at the, um, the Thai consul in Singapore, or Thai embassy. And as I was uh, telling that story in Singapore, the ambassador stood up and said, you know, he was one of the trustees of that temple in Bangkok. And he said, I've seen that story written down as part of our history, and it's absolutely true. I know the monk involved, he went over to the United States eventually, I haven't heard from him since, but you know, he was a monk for many, many years. Weird stuff, but true. And anyway, once you visit there, you know, they also came over here, that monk, many, many years ago. And when they leave there, 
they're going up to up to um, Ajahn Ganha's monastery. And Ajahn Ganha, he also spent about three, six months over here many years ago when we were building our, our main hall. And he was well known because he was seen. They don't photograph people in those days. He was actually seen meditating with a few other monks in the jungle. This was no jungle, in a real jungle. You know, not fake jungle, not just dangerous animals like kangaroos. This was like snakes and bears and elephants and even tigers. And anyway, he was meditating there quietly. The monks opened their eyes because a big snake came up. It was a king cobra. And you know that in different parts of the world they have like slang names, nicknames for some of these snakes. In that part of Thailand, this snake had a nickname, the One Step Snake. And the reason for that was if they bite you, or uh, basically uh, uh, gonna, they strike you anyway, you've only got one step left and then you die. That's how venomous they are, the One Step Snake. I've only seen a, a King Cobra once in my life in Thailand. And I couldn't believe how big it was. Strange thing that when you become sensitive, you always realize when something's happening, there's like electricity in the air. That's the best way I can describe it. And something's happening. And so anyway, I was turning on, going back to my hut in the forest, and I felt that something was happening. I turned the corner and there's this big black shape across the path. Just a walking path. It's maybe about one meter wide, and a big black snake was across the path, and it just kept on moving. Before I was a monk again, I was a theoretical physicist. I don't know, this is how I've been conditioned. I wanted to find out, you know, just how big that snake was. It was like as thick as your thigh, but how long it was. So I kept measuring it by a number of times it went along the path, one meter, and about seven or eight times. Seven or eight meter long snake. There's a big one. I never saw its head. All you saw was its tail when it finally finished coming out. Huge snake. Strangely though, and I'm being honest with you, I never felt scared. It's like snakes that size are somehow kind of magical. You don't feel like they're going to attack you. There's something weird happening. But anyway, a similar snake came up to Ajahn Ganha in the forest. And he'd just been meditating for I don't know how long. And then it came right up to him along the ground, then lifted up its head, opened its hood. And I always ask at this point, what would you do? Don't ever think of getting up and running. One of the scariest things I saw, you know, living in the forest over in northeast Thailand, was how fast those snakes can run, or can actually slither, whatever. I don't think I could outrun them. And also, just they could cross water as well. They could swim. That really kind of 
frightened me to see just how agile they were and how fast. So anyway, just running away doesn't help. So anyway, this snake opened its hood in front of Ajahn Ganha. What this monk did, <laughs> absolutely crazy. He lifted up his hand and patted the snake on the head, saying in the Isan language, thank you for coming to visit me. Talking to a snake, an extremely dangerous snake, and patting the snake on the head. And what do you think the snake did? The snake loved every moment of that. It's such a rare privilege to be patted on the top of the head by a human being. Snakes very rarely get that pleasure, especially from a great monk like Ajahn Ganha. The snake never bit Ajahn Ganha. He just enjoyed that for a few minutes, and then he lowered his head down and went to see the next monk. And apparently the next monk told the snake, no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> if you want your head patted, go back. <laughs> There's a great amount of courage to do that. And the other story I was saying about Ajahn Ganha, he actually came here. And when he came here, that was when, as I mentioned, we were building our main hall in Bodhinyana Monastery. We had all the plans in and the local council and then we were hopeful we'd get permission to build it. And then unexpectedly, the mayor of Serpentine Jaradel Council, he came just to have us check to see what we were up to. He came in and he was one of these farmers. Now, Mr. Clem Kentridge, his name was. He became a good friend afterwards. He, he won't mind me telling his name because Clem Kentridge came in a suit, a nice tie, you know, well-dressed, not like us. But he was, you know, like me, he was, you know, had a lot of gravitas. Okay, he was fat. <laughs> so I noticed his jacket, you know, his, the top part of his suit had only one button holding it together, and that was really being strained. It could pop at any time. And I saw him, I was busy doing something else, but Ajahn Gunha saw him first. And this Thai monk, who couldn't speak any English, went straight towards him. This was the mayor, the guy who was going to approve or not approve our first building. And what Ajahn Ganha did, I couldn't believe it. He didn't pat the mayor on the head, he pat him on his tummy <laughs> and rubbed it. Now what mayor of what council can you rub their tummy? That is not how things are done in Australia. And I thought, I saw it in my own eyes, I thought, oh no, all the hard work, of all the plans. I, Dennis, you drew those plans, didn't you? Remember that, good plans, all f messed up because somebody doesn't know how to respect a mayor, rubbing his tummy. But then I noticed the mayor, he just started grinning and then gurgling like, the best way I can describe it, like a baby. He loved every second, <laughs> second of that, having your tummy rubbed. 
And of course, not only do we get permission to build that hall, it's up there now, but also became a really good friend, friend of our monastery, and uh, until he eventually passed away. I remember going to his funeral, and I, I make a confession to you. When I went to his funeral service, at the end of the funeral service, his daughter, Coralie, she's our neighbor, you know, she said, oh, thank you, Ajahn Brahm, for coming. And I said, no, no trouble. And then she went to give me a hug. That's what you do in Australia. And I said, you're not allowed to hug monks. And he said, yes, I am. <laughs> <laughs> that lady would wrestle sheep. Well, I had no chance. <laughs> so she gave me a hug. Okay, it's not my fault. I never intended that. Because, you know, sometimes you see that happen in Thailand, I get in big trouble. But nevertheless, it was totally innocent. And uh, that's how Ajahn Gunhar's fault. <laughs> Rubbing the tummy. But the other thing which he did, which I was just telling um, Prem earlier, one of the stories which maybe you don't know about Ajahn Gunhar. When I was uh, recent, no, not recently, about five or six years ago, over in South Korea, doing an event with Ajahn Gunha. You know, they wanted me to give a, a talk. And we all had to give talks. I gave my talk. And when Ajahn Gunha was to give his talk, he said, no, you give it, Ajahn Brahm. So I wanted to tell one of his stories. So I asked him permission. He said, yes, please do so. And that was when he was wandering as a monk uh, in the area between Burma and Thailand in a very... Uh, north and west of Thailand. And in those days, you know, you could just wander wherever. There was no need for passports as a monk. You just walk and see where you end up. And he eventually came into uh, a village, a settlement of Karen rebels fighting the Burmese government. And the Karens were all Christians. He was a Buddhist. But when he actually arrived in the village, they were very impressed with him. And the reason was, he'd walked right through their minefield without, <laughs> without getting blown up, which was impossible. <laughs> and I mentioned that at this particular story because we'd just been that day when I told the story about Achanganha through the DMC between South Korea and North Korea. We were doing a Buddhist peace march in the DMC, so it was appropriate. I said, well, he could have got in there, because, you know, I don't know how he does it, but he doesn't get blown up by minefields. And the Karen villagers were quite impressed with him. That's a pretty good introduction. This is a really good monk. It doesn't matter, Buddhist, Christian, or whatever. So they invited him to stay the Rains Retreat there. It was just the start of the Rains Retreat. He spent three months with the Karen in there, teaching them, you know, being kind, answering problems. Just a beautiful gift to them for three months. And after the three months, he said, well, I have to go now. It's the end of the Rains Retreat. And they said, no, we don't want you to go. Well, I have to go. He said, well, okay. So they gave him a guide to go through the minefield. And then after a few minutes, only a few minutes, the, the elders of that community came running after him, running as fast as they could. They said, we miss you already. Please come back. 
You know, he's such a kind monk, so much generosity and just wisdom, and that they they fell in love with him. They didn't want him to go, but he said, "I had to go." So he wished them you know, the best, and then off he went, walking back into Thailand. It didn't really matter, you know. Not politics was not important. It wasn't really mattering Christians, Buddhists, Muslims, or whatever. He was just such a lovely, kind monk. So that's who you're also going to go and see. Some of you are going on that trip. But anyway, after Ajahn Gunha, then they're going to go up to see, I might get this in the wrong order, but Ajahn Liam. Ajahn Liam, he was one of the chief disciples of Ajahn Chah. And I take a lot of inspiration from him. You notice how much in the old days I would build things. Even this hall over here. In this hall you're sitting in over here, who did the first uh, plan for this hall? <laughs> we had the architect, he just split the two roofs up instead of just having it just going straight down. But basically this, this plan was mine. So, you know, I've done a, a lot of building you know, and over these years. But that's what monks do. Over in Thailand, one of the great builders over there was Ajahn Liam. And even when Ajahn Chah passed away, needed someone to build the main shrine for Ajahn Chah. The, they called it a stupa. And that was designed by Ajahn Liam. A whole year of really hard work to finish it. And inside this uh, stupa, inside there was a metal uh, box, really thick, heavily welded, because they were going to put Ajahn Chah's body in there to do the cremation ceremony. And even the king of Thailand you know, came for the first part of that ceremony. Did any of you go there for that cremation? Really? Dennis, you never went? No. Well, I went there, obviously, because that's why I can tell the story. But anyway, the king was there, and just they did all the ceremonies. And once everybody had finished for the day, that's when we lit the funeral pyre. So we lit the pyre, it was in this big metal container, that was where, with a chimney, going up the top of this little building, and lots of wood and other stuff there, we lit the funeral pyre, and it really started burning, really burning, really burning too hot, and the container cracked. It couldn't stand the heat. And all the flames started shooting out. I was there at the time, saw it. Total disaster. This was Ajahn Chah, a really important monk. He was on the TV, the TV cameras were there that day. Interesting, all these amazing phenomena. At that funeral service, on the TV, they had a few monks and a senior lay disciple. And on the TV, live TV, they asked all these senior monks and this lay disciple, have you ever seen Ajahn Chah do a psychic power? Something magical, like levitate, 
or something like that. So all the monks were silent. And then the lay person put his hand up, said yes. A senior lay disciple of Ajahn Chah is going to say on live TV one of the psychic powers he had witnessed from Ajahn Chah. And of course everyone was excited. What did you see? What did you see? What did you see? And he said, if any of you know the Buddha's teachings, the Buddha talked about many psychic powers which actually happen as part of life as a meditator. But he always said that most of those psychic powers don't mean anything, they're just like tricks. You know, they're real, but you know, what's the point of them? Only one of those psychic powers did the Buddha praise. Don't rush ahead too much. You're taking away the suspense. <laughs> exactly right. He said, I saw Ajahn Chah teach thousands and thousands of people. And all the other monks at the time, they told me after, I wish we'd have thought of that. <laughs> but anyway, Ajahn Liam, after the TV cameras had gone home, everything went wrong. And what did Ajahn Liam do? He was responsible for this. He's raised all the funds for it. You know, he'd shown everybody around. This was his teacher, it was Ajahn Chah. And now the whole thing burst out into flames. It was a catastrophe. And I was there at the time, and I saw Ajahn Liam. He just looked at the mess. He just shrugged his shoulders, and he went back to his hut for a sleep. He was exhausted. I always remember that. So any time I do anything and it all goes wrong, I follow the Ajahn Lee method. Go back to my room and crash out. <laughs> but what it really showed me, you see how much hard work he'd given to that project. And it didn't matter, he'd done his bit. Okay, it didn't work out as expected, but nevertheless, okay, so what? And then he went and rested. Fortunately, other monks, such as myself, got out hoses and we doused the flames. And, you know, the building actually survived. And eventually the, the body was cremated well. Ajahn Lim, he didn't know anything about that. He just went to bed thinking it had all gone wrong. So when life goes wrong for you, have a big project, and it never works out as expected, what do you do? Go to bed. <laughs> Sometimes people take so much personal responsibility and they worry too much. How many times you've worried because it didn't work out the way you expected it this week? It was too hot or too cold or things didn't go quite right as you expected. Why do you worry so much? You give your best. That's good enough. But anyway, you'd be seeing Ajahn Liam as well. He's really The other thing I always remember him teaching me because when I went to go and see him to pay respects many years ago, you know, when I just uh, started taking over from the previous abbot, Ajahn Jakaro, and I, we have a little saying we say to each other as senior monks, how are your monks? Are they easy to train?
Because that's my responsibility. I'm supposed to be training, and not just these, but nuns as well. Goodness knows who else. So I asked him, how are your monks? Are they easy to train? He said, yeah, really easy. And of course, monks can't lie. They can't really exaggerate. So I said, what's your secret? How is it your monks are so easy to train? Is it simple? When they want to go that way, I let them go that way. When they want to go that way, I let them go that way. That's how I train my monks. That's what he said. And I thought, wow, how powerful a teaching that is. Your job is not to tell people what to do, but to inspire them what to do. So when even before they start going this way or that way, you've already inspired them what to do. Over here we call that brainwashing. Each one of you been really quiet and listening, very respectful. Why? Do I force you to do that? Or have you been coming here long enough, you've all been totally brainwashing exactly what to do? That's a much better way of teaching and leading. I remember I read that uh, years before in a book called The Chinese Art of War. You ask, what's a Buddhist monk doing reading a book called The Chinese Art of War? Because they had lots and lots of very wise sayings in there. It was not just about, you know, violence. One of the generals in the Chinese army had perfect discipline. And the emperor wanted to find out why. And how come everyone follows your instructions? Now any one of you in a management position in your life, please remember this, is how to have good management skills. He said, all my soldiers always follow my orders because I only ever tell them to do what they want to do. That's why they never disobey an order. I only tell them to do what they want to do. Of course, that doesn't make sense. How can you tell people to get up early in the morning? How do you tell people to go out and train really hard? How do you tell your soldiers to go into battle, even though many of them will get injured or even killed? How can you get them to follow orders like that? And he said, because he's already motivated them, inspired them. So even before the bell goes off in the morning, they're raring, waiting to get up and do something good. It's that motivation, giving them a reason for doing what they're doing. And if you give them that reason, of course they will do what they want. They'll get up earlier than you expect. They'll train even harder. They'll go in there, I don't know why, how you can convince them to give their lives, but many people do that. They go there giving their lives for the cause, for freedom, for equity, for whatever else. That's called motivation. So being able to tell my monks, You've got to get up early in the morning. It's a beautiful thing to do. You're up here in, in our center over here. It's nice and quiet in the morning. 
a great opportunity to meditate. How many other great monks and nuns have sat here? Now your chance to sit on that cushion. Wow! <laughs> That's how Ajahn Chah motivated me. And I just once over in Sri Lanka, not just Thailand, I was staying in this cave. And just a very simple cave up in uh, the north of the island, not quite north, but central and a bit north, by Anuradhapura. And up there, I looked on the top of the cave, there was an inscription of the person who, who donated that cave. And it was about 1600 years ago. And as soon as I saw that, I was sitting in the cave and so many other Sangha members have been meditating, meditating in that cave for over 1600 years. That's a long time. And as soon as I sat down, ooh, goosebumps all over. And how many amazing beings had sat right where I've been sitting. That's the kind of thing which really inspires you. I don't know how many of you, this is a little secret, but I think many of you know this. You may go on a retreat over in Jhana Grove, and some of you just walk over to Bodhinyana Monastery, sit in the main hall there in the front. I don't know how many people <laughs> get really, really, really deep meditation in the front of that hall. Why? Because so many other monks and nuns, really good meditators, have sat there and got deep meditation. It's like their peace, their stillness, their kindness has soaked into that carpet. It's just stayed in that air. You can actually feel it sometimes. Look, I'm not a crazy monk. you know me for many years. The energy in part of that hall, especially the front, is immense. That's why I don't know who, who it was. If they, if they can tell me, because I'd love to know, you know the full details of this story. Somebody said they had a Feng Shui master. They, invited them to Perth, and they came to visit Bodhinyana Monastery while I wasn't there. And they went into that main hall. They just went in the, 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 uh, the door, went into the hall, and when they went in there, they said, wow, the Feng Shui in this hall is immense, especially at the front. The back is good, but not as strong as in the front. I don't know how they knew that. But it's many people experience that, got great energy in the front there. So all those little stories, you know, just conditioning how we teach. If they want to go that way, let them go that way. If they want to go that way, let them go the other way. But condition them, explain to them why in your organization, if it's a monastery or if it's a company or if it's whatever you're doing, why going in that direction? is best for everybody. Once you do that, you have no problems in a company or an organization getting it to go in the right direction. And I got that from Ajahn Liam. Very wonderful. Wonderful. Okay, okay, I can't miss out one of the last monks you're going to see. Actually, okay, just one last one. 
That was his monk Ajahn Tate in Himmakpeng. His monastery is on the banks of the Mekong River. Beautiful monastery. And there's a couple of things about that. You can check this out on the internet if you like. That next to that monastery, they have this phenomena called, they call it like Deva lights, D-E-V-A-L-I-G-H-T-S. Because once a year, on the full moon day of October, for so many years, these balls of light would actually rise through the water and explode like a firework display above the Mekong River. And Ajahn Tate would always say this was like beings underneath the water were celebrating the end of the rains retreat, which happens on the full moon night of uh, October. Every year. And they, it was such a clear phenomenon that many scientists would actually go after the Vietnam War, they could go on the other side of the river as well, on the Laotian side, to make sure there's no funny business going on. No one's ever, ever been able to explain it. I'm not sure if it's still happening, because that was quite a few years ago. But when he was alive, that would always happen once a year. He was also the monk who inspired me that when I was, went to Thailand for the first time, this was one of those monks who was in Srivat Hospital with a cancer, untreatable, paid for by, you know, treatment paid for by the King of Thailand at the time. He was dying. He said, I'd rather die in my own monastery on the banks of the Mekong River than in uh, Srivat Hospital in Bangkok. So, he went back to die. About 25 or 30 years later, he finally died. <laughs> he kept his promise. <laughs> but I remember that story, and I remember going to see him. And that was where, I was a young monk. Like you, you have these really interesting, deep questions. And he was one of the only monks in Thailand who could answer these questions. Amazing monk. So I had about five or six my most important questions I wanted to get answers for. I had to wait a couple of days, even though I was a monk, I had to just go in line and wait for my chance. When my f chance finally came, I came in front of this tiny monk. If you ever meet any of the great monks, on the outside they don't look impressive. Just their simplicity and their peace and their kindness. That is the symbol of these amazing people. But anyway, I went into the room, I bowed three times as our custom, and then my mind went so still. It's the best way I can describe it, still, peaceful, and so happy. It was weird. And all these questions which I had became so meaningless. I didn't know what to say, but I knew what I was thinking. My thought, and this is accurate, I remember this very clearly. My thought was, you're going to have to drag me out of here with water buffaloes. I'm not going to leave. He felt so accepted. You know, really accepted. You didn't have to improve. 
you didn't have to change anything to do anything. It was just one of the most powerful uh, experiences of unconditional love you'd ever received. This was a time monk, not a relation, but it's like if you see like a dear old grandfather or a you know, mother or someone, someone who really, really, really unconditionally loves you, and multiply that by about a thousand. That's how I felt. You didn't need to get rid of anything. You didn't need to change. You didn't need to have any answer answered at all. That simile I've often given here, probably too many times, about the trees which are bent and twisted in the forest, all being welcome. You don't need to, to change. You're beautiful and perfect as you are. You don't need to want anything or get rid of anything. All that wanting and getting rid of negativity just evaporates. Imagine how that feels. And I was just in the presence of this Ajahn Tate, one of the monks you know, used of respect and love the most. And it wasn't any teaching which he gave. It was just his presence, his aura, just being there. And I said something stupid like, I think, yeah, we said, what's your question? I said, probably best we answer our own questions. Oh, yes, 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 much better. <laughs> so all those questions are a total waste of time. So anyway, in a few minutes, I'll ask if you have any questions. <laughs> it's okay to have questions, to make yourself open for questions, but it's something much more powerful, much more deep. The power of that peace and meditation, and the unconditional parts of mindfulness and loving kindness and peace. That is the most important. And once you feel that, and once you can give that, wow, that's so peaceful and satisfying. So he was one of the best of those monks. And, you know, fortunately he passed away, but I never forget monks like that. Let you see examples. And nuns too. I remember seeing some great nuns. When you see such people, or you're those people, wow, what a gift to the world that is. So please excuse me for, some of you may like this type of talk or may not like this type of talk, I don't know. But that's just what came out today. Just because of what we were talking about a little bit earlier. Kind of inspired me. Thank you for listening. Sadhu, 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 sadhu. Okay, so any questions from the internet? Oh, there's Prem over there with a question. Over this way, Prem. <laughs> You're going the long way round. Thank you, Ajahn. Um, what is your advice to a lay person who happens to be in the presence of a um, monk, uh, we believe have reached the arahat status. Uh, how do you make the best of the few minutes you have in front of them? Oh, you what don't, is your advice? You don't worry about making the best or making the worst. You're just in front, just let go, relax, and just soak it all in. That's all you can do. Any plans you have, I'll do this, I'll ask this question, I'll do this way. It's just totally a waste of time. Yes. You just go in there, <laughs> you just get inspired. 
interesting thing though, this was many, many, many years ago, these experiences I've been talking about, but you never forget them. That experience with Ajahn Tate, for example, I can just see him. The King of Thailand built this amazing little uh, place for him. And it was just, basically, he was a, such a simple monk, and it was a very, very expensive building was given to him. He was just sitting on a little cushion, tiny, didn't have anything, just his own robe, and just looking out the window to the Mekong. The simplicity was what I really remember. If you hadn't have known who he was, you could walk right past him. And not really, one thing was, be quiet, and don't do too many things. And one of the things which I really dislike is when we do too much ceremony, Instead of the ceremony, just sit there and just soak it in. Thank you, Ajahn. Thank you very much. Okay. Okay, anything from the internet? Okay. <laughs> One thing I know for Ajahn Ganha's monastery, he doesn't have any internet there. So you can't connect to anybody. You can disconnect from the busy world and have a nice peaceful time. Oh wow, this is amazing. We had one question from Bolivia, one from Malta, one from India, and one from Israel. That's quite a, a nice coverage. Number one, how can I let go of the past if I have to learn from my mistakes? And how can I let go of the future if I have to look forward to not break any precepts? Don't look forward to not breaking any precept, just don't break any precept now. <laughs> you don't have to look forward to anything. If you look forward, you're missing out the present moment. This is life as it happens. Like, I don't know, when I used to watch TV, they had, this was now years ago when I was a lay person, they always had to say, what's coming up next week? Who knows what's coming up next week? Just don't see what's on now. What's happening right now to you? Don't sacrifice the beauty of the present for some idea of what might happen later. Because as we predict it, it never happens the way we expect. Look at me becoming a monk. When I was young, I never ever in my wildest dreams thought I'd become a monk. You know what I wanted to do? Become a professional footballer. <laughs> it's crazy. But you see what happened. As soon as, you know, I became a monk, he loved it straight away. It was weird. I tell this story and it's absolutely true. The first three nights after I became a novice monk, it was 50 years ago now, almost. The first three nights I woke up with a nightmare. This was in a room in Bangkok, in Watsaket, I slept there and I woke up, a nightmare. I opened my eyes. My nightmare was, I was a lay person, honestly. And I saw my robes folded next to my bed. <sighs> I've made it. I really am a monk. And I closed my eyes and <laughs> went into a nice, peaceful, uh, contented, deep sleep. And that happened three nights in a row. 
It's like psychologically, you know, that, that must be telling you something, telling you how much, you know, you really wanted to be a monk for such a long time. So anyway, instead of planning anything, just enjoy this moment and learn from my mistakes. You don't learn so much from mistakes. You acknowledge them, forgive them, which is most important. No punishment, no hiding, no feeling ashamed you made terrible mis mistakes. And that's where you learn. What's another one of my stupid mistakes I made years ago? First of all, letting Ajahn Gunha rub the tummy of the mare. <laughs> it was okay. And that's actually how you learn, not by bringing up the past. If it comes up by itself, fine. Realize you're not perfect. I know one of my mistakes. I'm just trying to think of one of the mistakes. You know, one of the, I was a student, one of my girlfriends, no, I only had one at the time. So one of the girlfriend I had at the time, you know, she uh, decided to cook me a dinner. So, you know, I went to her apartment, apartment or a small little flat or whatever, uh, for dinner. And she knew I was like a Buddhist and she decided to make me something like some like some healthy food. But at that time I was a vegetarian, a very strict vegetarian, and she made me this little curry with meat in it, not that much meat. And I refused to eat it. I said, you should have known I was a vegetarian. Oh, so, sorry, I made a mistake. I refused to eat what she cooked for me. And to this day, I feel very, very ashamed of how I treated her. Yeah, I mean, she, she put all that energy and effort into cooking me something she thought I liked, and I refused it. And these days, I would never do that anymore. If I had that time again, I'd say, look, I'd eat it first and then say afterwards, very delicious, but you know I'm a vegetarian. Because acknowledging that they make mistakes. That was my mistake, big mistake. I'll never do that again. Never be a fundamentalist, extremist vegetarian. <laughs> so anyway, that's some mistakes which I made. You learn very quickly. You don't have to keep thinking about them. Remember the kindness of people and acknowledge that. For Malta, it is advised to watch the breath to be more present. You can do, but you don't have to. But wouldn't focusing on the breath take you away from your surroundings? Exactly. Wouldn't watching the breath be the same as the distraction? It can be, yes. The right time and the right place. I think even last week I said, some people think you should never be attached. And I always say, yes, you should be attached in the right circumstances. Like if you're on the back of a motorbike going through busy traffic, please be attached. <laughs> and it's the same with breath. You know, if you've just been on a retreat, sometimes I ask people, please just drive around the car park first. You can't be watching the breath, you should be watching the traffic. Otherwise you may kill yourself. So, I disagree with that, the advice to watch the breath be more present. It helps, but the most important thing to do, Empress Three Questions meditation, now is the only time you ever have. The most important meditation is the thing right in front of you, right now.
no matter what that is. Right now, the most important thing in the whole world is this tablet. I'm reading the next question. If I'm watching my breath, my mind is divided. But when I close my eyes to meditate, then my breath is the most important. The next one from India. How to control anxiety related to work? I don't feel like going to work. So much anxiety, so many people, tight schedule. You don't even get time to relax. Can't you go to the toilet? That's a, usually people are allowed to go to the toilet when you go to work. And what do they call toilets in US? Rest rooms. So don't waste it just depositing something in the bowl. Just sit down there and enjoy yourself. And if your boss says to you, why do you keep spending 15 minutes in the toilet? Be honest with them. Say, because you're constipated. Mentally. <laughs> and any boss would know, any boss who's done any psychology would know that 15 minutes of rest is made up afterwards by more work done in less time, much healthier. That's that thing I keep on saying about investment of time. What's good for you is also good for the company. Basically, you know, you just perform much better. What you write, what you do, what you complete is much better quality. You do it in less time. I often mention this, but one of the things which I have in my room at Bodhinyana Monastery is the first manuscript of that book, Opening the Door of Your Heart, written out by hand. So this was when I was on a meditation retreat, my own retreat for two weeks. I spend one hour every day, you know, just on plain paper, with a pen, just writing out the stories and opening the door of your heart. Because I was meditating, there's hardly any mistakes on it. It just kind of flowed out like you're in the zone, effortless. And then hours up, finish, and then go off and meditate again. And half the book was done in 13 days. And I got the original manuscript, and every now and again I look at that and think, wow, and there's no mistakes on it. Sometimes people ask me, what type of font did you use on your computer? It wasn't any font, just my own handwriting. And it's so easy, so gorgeous. That's why I keep that, to remind myself the power of resting, and then you can create things like great books so easily. Once you've relaxed, then you can produce. Lastly from Israel, how to deal with suffering that we have no power to lessen change? The war here is so devastating, it brings so much death, fear and hatred. How to live through that? How to find hope? How you find hope is that it's amazing just when there's the more suffering, the more problems. Please excuse me, it's the more dung to dig into your garden. Sometimes it gets so, so painful, so hopeless. You have to stand back as best you can or just imagine so in a quiet moment, just of what's possible. I still remember growing up just in the aftermath of the Second World War in London. My 
couple of my relations got killed. No, just this is my good friend. He's from where were you from? Germany. Germany, yeah, my good friend. <laughs> <laughs> and even my own mother, she came that close to being killed. A bomb came into the house right next to her. You know, the, the terraced houses, no gardens between people, just, you know, the wall where she was in the other side of the wall was the next uh, neighbor's house. The neighbors got killed instantly. My mother, apparently, the glass shattered and her whole uh, arm was lacerated by the glass. But she survived. No ill will. Just you know what stupid politicians do sometimes. And, but no ill will. And she lived a wonderful long life. So remember, no matter how dark it gets, just usually the sun comes out and there's life afterwards. As long as people learn, learn just not to regard people of another race, of another religion, another gender, other culture. Never think they are that different than us or than you. Never ever think that you're superior and they don't count. That's why it's great to meet each other. That's why it's great to see not just people of the same race or religion as you, but see people are totally different and realize what we have in common. Every person I've ever met, their tears are always salty. Every person I've ever met, they sit all laugh at the same stupid jokes. And I think I've gone on quite long now. It's about time I told a stupid joke. Someone challenged me about, when was the last time I told the story of the bear, the rabbit, and the magic duck? How many of you have heard that story? Okay, here it comes. <laughs> okay. So once there was a bear, a, uh, a rabbit, and this magic duck. And the bear would always chase the rabbit and make such a noise in the forest. And one day, <laughs> one day, they were chasing each other past the lake in which they had a magic duck. And the magic duck said to them, look, be quiet, you two. This is a nice, peaceful forest. Why do I have to always endure you making so much noise? And the bear said, well, nothing much else to do in this forest. And the magic duck said, look, if you promise not to chase each other again, I will give you three wishes each. <laughs> if you want to leave now, you can. So the magic the bear looked at the duck, looked at the rabbit, sorry, and the rabbit looked at the bear and they both agreed. Okay. So Mr. Bear, he decided to have the first wish. My first wish, he was a male bear, that all the other bears in the forest are all female. I'm the only male. Then I'll be too tired to ever chase this stupid rabbit. 
I thought, well, it's a male thing, okay. <laughs> so the duck rolled its eyes and said, quack. And then all the bears in the whole forest were all female. He was the only male. And then they asked the rabbit, what's your first wish? And he said, my first wish is a motorbike helmet. And then the duck said, what? A motorbike helmet? You know, with a big hole in the back for my two ears. What do you want one of those for? Look, it's none of your business. You said I could have a wish. I wish for a motorbike helmet. Okay, quack. And then a motorbike helmet <laughs> appeared on the head of the duck. Oh, not the duck, on the head of the rabbit, sorry. And now, okay, Mr. Bear, what's your second wish? And Mr. Bear said, well, I've been thinking that, you know, it's not just this forest. All the forests around, when they hear there's only female bears in my forest, they'll all come and migrate. So may all the bears in the whole country all be female, and I'm the only male. Okay, quack. And he got his wish. And then to the rabbit, what's your second wish? And he said, my second wish is I want a thousand cc Hardy Davidson to go with my motorbike helmet. Well, fair enough, I can understand that. Quack! And so I had this beautiful new Harley, and then... <laughs> Sorry, another punchline. <laughs> and so the rabbit was on his Harley Davidson, revving up, vroom, 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 vroom. And then it was Mr. Bear's chance for his third wish. What's your third wish? And Mr. Bear said, you know, I should have said this at the very beginning. It's not just this country. What about all the neighboring countries? They'll find some way of getting here and spoiling my fun. So, may all the bears in the whole world all be female and I'm the only male bear. <laughs> Quack! And his wish came true. No, don't worry, the bear's going to get it in a moment. <laughs> and, and then the, the rabbit is revving up on his bike, waiting to get a quick getaway. What's your third wish, Mr. Rabbit? He said, my third, third wish is that Mr. Be Mr. Bear is gay. <laughs> Serves that bear right. <laughs> it's got nothing to do with discrimination against anything. It's just the choices people make are sometimes just selfish and just not really, really clever. So I apologise if it offended anybody, but I never mean to do that. Just to tell bears, you know, especially male bears, <laughs> to be restrained. Okay, so that's the talk for this evening. <laughs> I'm sure you've remembered the joke, maybe other things not so much, but anyway, I wish you all a happy evening. We can now pay respects to the Buddha Dhamma. Sorry, Buddha Dhamma and Sangha, and then we can go to where we need to go. Sama Sambudo Bhagawa 
Buddhang Bhagavantang Abhiwadevi Suvakato Bhagavata Dhammo Dhammang Namasami Supatipano Bhagavato Sawaka Sango Sangang Namami (laughs) 